Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And speaking of all the things we're doing and reviewing, this past Friday, we just dropped an episode on our Gear 30 podcast about our 23-24 Winter Buyer's Guide. It's a fun conversation, and for those of you who haven't already combed through the entire guide, or maybe you haven't checked out our big, big buyer's guide, well, I think you should check out that conversation. You'll learn a thing or two about the guide, our approach to it, what is unique about it, in addition to it being absolutely massive, and you'll get to form your own opinion about whether or not I should allow Luke Kappa to attend my funeral or actually maybe direct the whole thing. So check out that episode of Gear 30. Now, here in Crested Butte and in other parts of the Northern Hemisphere, snow is definitely starting to fall, and that means that chairlifts will be spinning real soon. So we thought it would be a good time to discuss all that happens behind the scenes to get a ski area ready for opening day. And our guest today is John Kelly, who has worked in numerous aspects of operations in the ski industry, starting as a lifty back in the day, to these days where he is now the chief operations officer at Taos Ski Valley. So in this conversation, John and I talk about snowmaking, maintaining and operating chairlifts, skiing and ski area culture, and in case you're wondering, I specifically asked John about Taos's current policy on car camping, since, as you know, that is something that Cody Townsend and I have been talking about on recent episodes of Reviewing the News. So John and I discussed that issue, and then he and I also talk about the important issue of ski areas and sustainability in all its forms. And before we get started here, I should note, as all of you old blisterheads know, but some of you newer folks to these parts might not be aware, I actually started Blister at Towski Valley back in 2011, and we were headed to Crested Butte right around the time when John was getting to Taos, so he and I really kind of just missed each other there. But... I and some of our Blister team is going to be heading back to Taos this winter to do some skiing and riding and gear reviewing, and I am really looking forward to spending some time again at the place where we started Blister and getting to make some turns again down one of my favorite mountains in the world. Still true to this day. And who knows, maybe I'll even do a shot or two of tequila in John's office, just for old time's sake. Anyway, don't tell John about that. We'll see if it happens. But for now, please enjoy this cool conversation with John Kelly. Here we go. Well, John, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm sitting in my office at the Taos Ski Valley, looking out at the base of Lift One and up at Al's Run. So it's it's hard to beat that. This might sound kind of creepy of me to say, John, but I am certain that I have spent many, many, many hours exactly where you are right now. 
you know, my time running around TSV and frankly, a lot of time spent in those back offices, I, I remember very fondly. So uh, I hope you're taking good care of the place for me. Oh, absolutely. And I know a lot of folks, whether it be the Blakes or others, have had this office in the past. And so um, I know a lot of um, a lot of big meetings and a lot of big decisions have been made in this office, for sure. Probably a few parties, too, John. Uh, abs- absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to get anybody in trouble, you know, over there. But um, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing some passes have been pulled in this office as well. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I never had my pass pulled in the office. Um, it did happen one time. And I, and I literally cried. I cried the time it happened. And I'm not going to tell that story, but, um, you know, it it happens to the best of us sometimes. Right. Unfortunately, we have to do that from time to time at the resort. As much as we don't want to, sometimes we're forced to. John, tell the people, what is your official title at TSV? Yeah, my official title is Chief Operating Officer, and I stepped into that role back in May. Uh, Prior to that, I was the VP of Operations for the resort. Gotcha. And... Tell the folks a bit more about your own background as a skier in mountain sports. Uh, Take us back. Yeah, I'd I'd love to. And thanks for asking. Uh, I I was actually, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, of all places. Uh, I I had parents that would take us out to the mountains. Um, You know, we'd go out west every couple years and was able to get that exposure and then grew up skiing the, the mountains of West Virginia and North Carolina. Uh, and so um, kind of shortly after college, I, I was a lift operator at Deer Valley for a season and, and got hooked for sure and actually found my way to Telluride after that. And I spent about 10 years in Telluride um, before heading down to Taos and uh, thrilled that I, myself and, and my wife and our kids made the move to Taos um, about eight years ago now. So we've been here about eight years. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. How long were you in Telluride? Uh, about 10 years. Yeah, from like 2005 to 2015. Okay, so to recap a little bit, just your work in the ski industry started as a lifty, yeah? Correct, yeah, at, at Deer Valley. And just a, a real quick side note, um, one of the lifts that we replaced this year, the Pioneer Ski Lift, um, we actually, the Taos actually bought from Deer Valley about 15 years ago and on like my first week, I'm like staring at this lift and I'm like, I know this lift. And I was a lift op on that lift in Deer Valley. And then all of a sudden I'm chasing it to Taos. So very, very cool. It's another one of these examples of just, it's a small industry with some really unique stories. That's funny. Amazing. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm sitting here in Crested Butte. We're having the, the annual seasonal confusion thing where there's very much a war going on in my head because right now the leaves are golden, the mountain biking is spectacular, but snows are starting to come in, right? Like the mountains are turning white and there's the side of me that just wants to keep mountain biking. Then there's the side of me that can't wait to start skiing. And, you know, it it happens every year this way. But I thought that this would be a cool occasion to pull back the curtain a bit on what it looks like for a Taos Ski Valley to actually get ready and open up for the year. But with your background, I think you also would be able to address kind of more broadly, hey, this is probably what most of the ski areas that our listeners would be you know, going to, 
these are some of the things that maybe most of us who just show up and are like, great, the lifts are spinning and there's snow. We maybe don't have the full picture of everything that goes into opening up a ski area. And uh, most people don't. And I think that's what's really fascinating about what happens at a ski resort um, really all year long, but definitely, you know, kind of October, November leading up to opening day. And, and you definitely honed in on kind of the mountain town dilemma where you're like, oh, man, I don't, I, I don't want to give up too much biking right now, but I'm ready for skiing. And, and I think the same is true for us that work up on the mountain where um, we, we want it to start snowing at the absolute perfect right time for us to get all our summer maintenance, all our summer work done, uh, and then have it start to snow when the, when the temps are right for snowmaking and we can really hold that snowpack and, and start to work it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this... I think for, for all of us, um, prepping for the winter starts on closing day back in the spring. Uh, the, the amount of work that our lift maintenance teams do, um, you know, on line work, grip work, chair work, all those aspects, uh, the snowmaking teams do, you know, the patrol and the forestry, um, all those aspects um, every single day throughout the summer, you know, are, are prepping and improving the mountain for, for opening day. You know, specifically right now, I think what's what's fascinating and you really have to lean in on the expertise of, you know, the the crews that have been working this mountain for decades is every season, every year is is different. You know, maybe you have a really snowy, cold start. Maybe you don't. Um, And so I think just the strategy alone is is really fascinating in terms of kind of that behind the curtain look of figuring out you know, when do we crank up snowmaking? When do we, when do we hold off? Um, and, and now we're within the window where if the temps are there, we started making snow here in Taos um, about a week ago. And, you know, from here on out every night, if the temps are there, we're going to go for it, uh, which is really exciting. And we'll start to get in, in that pattern. But, you know, from a, from a mountain prep standpoint, it's, it's extremely extensive um, to, you know, just to get, people up up lifts right um from not only from a snowmaking standpoint but also from a lift maintenance standpoint as well and then you know you got to adapt and overcome i mean you constantly you know the best laid plans right um and and so the mountain you got to take what the mountain's giving you you got to take what the weather gives you and you got to adapt those plans every single day um to to really kind of maximize on these small windows that we have to get the mountain ready Talking about snowmaking, so when you were saying in Taos, when we get under a certain sort of temperature range, that's got me thinking about how ski areas around the world would address this, because you got a couple variables at least, temperature itself and then altitude, right? And I just wonder, maybe you could say a bit more about that, um, how it works in Taos, or if you're like, look, man most ski areas kind of have when you hit, but when temps drop below this temperature, most resorts are making snow or what are the variables there that I'm maybe missing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, there's a term that, that I think most ski resorts, uh, use and, and really, um, follow and that's wet bulb. Uh, and that's a combination of temperature and humidity. And I actually, I'm looking above my desk right now because I have this chart um, that I, I look at. It's, it's basically the Ski Valley Snowmaking Temperature Guide, and it's got one section that says ideal snowmaking conditions. It's got one section that says marginal snowmaking conditions. And then below that, it says forget about it, get out the bike. Um, and so 
it's it's really cool for a lot of us that are uh, to your point you know you're making these daily decisions on you know um you don't want to waste water if it's too warm you know you don't want to spend a bunch of energy and resources if it's too warm you want to find that right um specific spot and and the wet bulb um is again combination of temperature and humidity and you're really tracking that uh you know, the towels we invested in weather stations about 10 years ago. So we really rely on those weather stations to show us what that wet bulb is, not only at the base, but mid mountain, upper mountain, so that we have confidence that when we start pushing that water and start making snow, that it's going to create the product that we need. Say more about the humidity component of it. Like, what do we like? Heavy humidity? No humidity? What's, what's good for you when you're trying to make snow? Yeah, and there's probably some weather experts that are going to listen to this podcast and like cringe when they <laughs> when they listen to me talk about this because I'm definitely not a weather expert. I, I pretend to think I know what I'm talking about um, based on my job and, and things like that. Uh, but but ultimately, you want you want low humidity. Um, the lower the humidity, uh, the higher the temperature. Um, you can kind of balance with making snow. So um, when the humidity is high, you need a pretty low temperature. Uh, to get that balance. When the humidity is low, you have a little bit more flexibility to make snow when the temperature is higher. And how long have you been in the snowmaking game? You were doing you were doing this in the Telluride days. I, I and, and to clarify, I I was not. So I actually um, started more in the kind of lift operations, guest services world. Um, my my background is not. Um, I, I was not a snowmaker. Um, or, you know, a snowcat driver or anything like that. Uh, when I moved to Taos um, to, to take on the operations piece, um, that's when I got more exposure to the operations kind of mountain maintenance type department. So uh, I've learned a lot um, over the last eight years in Taos, um, and I can definitely uh, uh, speak to a lot of it, but I, I lean heavily on the expertise and the experience of um, the snowmakers themselves for sure. Yeah, I guess I'm... I'm curious on that front, like just in the last eight years Mm -hmm. with what practices are sort of best practices, what we're learning in just your time, does it seem more similar than different or have there been moments in the last eight years where it's like, we just developed a new technology or we just learned something new about science to change how snowmaking is happening. I, I, I hate making you speak for, you know, every ski area out there, but maybe just to help us get a sense of like, it's been pretty similar over the last eight years, or we're, we've seen moments of um, real evolution in the, uh, in the art and practice of snowmaking. Um, we've definitely seen evolution and we continue to see evolution. I think the basics are the same, right? You need you need water, you need air, you need pressure, and you need cold temps. Um, so I think those obviously um, fundamentals have not changed and they won't change. But the um, the suppliers out there of snowmaking equipment uh, have really um, provided us a lot of benefits, um, not just the resort, but obviously the guest that gets to enjoy it. And those that, that technology advancements um, are primarily through, I think, uh, more energy efficient systems. Um, and then also automation. So um, resorts are really relying heavily on the automation piece of snowmaking, where as opposed to sitting your teams, you know, at all 
locations of the mountain to crank up those pumps um, and start pushing water, you know, you can do it from an office now, which is, which is huge. You're making, I think, more informed decisions with the data uh, and you're making more efficient decisions and you're able to do things quicker. Um, so the automation for sure has been one of the biggest advancements um, with snowmaking technology and, and will continue to do so. Okay, so what else about the snowmaking art slash science should we understand? The crews and the staff themselves. It, I mean, it is such a unique job and a unique personality uh, that in terms of going back to what we were talking about earlier of like kind of what guests don't know um, when they show up and, and get on the snow and start riding the lifts, you know, thinking about we, we um, uh, for a little while there, um, we were doing a while you are sleeping update um, from essentially kind of our snowmaking and grooming uh, director. So much happens in the middle of the night at two in the morning and these snowmakers are going up and, you know, sub, you know, sub zero temps uh, up on snowmobiles uh, to, to check guns and to make sure the product. So I think beyond the just the snowmaking system itself and the automation, um, there's just these, man, these crews are working their ass off um, every single night and, and, and all sorts of weather and temps. Um, to be able to supplement what Mother Nature is providing. Yeah, it's great to bring up this sort of nocturnal element of operating a ski area, right? Yeah, some characters for sure. I got a chance a couple years ago, and, and it's it's one of those things where I, I try to do it every year. Some years I, I do it, some years I don't. Um, but a couple years ago, I, I did a, a snowmaking shift with the crew overnight and um it was one so much fun two a lot of hard work and three i just i learned a ton um from this crew about what they do when the rest of us are are sleeping and you know graveyard shifts are tough and and just kind of the sleep patterns that you have to get yourself in and out of um is is a tough part of it as well so you know these crews typically uh come on mid-october uh they they work a ton of hours um 24 hours a day seven days a week through you know, for us in Taos, we typically finish up in late December. And then for the most part on an average season, um, we've, we've made the snow that we needed to make. Let's talk more about chairlifts. Nobody loves it, you know, when conditions are good and, you know, maybe specifically at chair two when you're chomping at the bit to get up <laughs> to West Basin and two's not running for some reason. Talk a little bit about what you think are the most common reasons why a lift might be down. And if you could also tell us a bit about, you know, I think everybody gets it when things get really windy and the wind's really howling. I think people understand that it might not be safe to be running chairlifts at times, but, but I don't know anything in terms of if it's like, yeah, once winds get over a certain, you know, miles per hour or a certain strength, that's when a clear decision gets made. Talk about some of the variables of why lifts are running and why sometimes they are not. Absolutely. And, and I think this is one of those, those pieces that from a guest perspective, um, you know, I, I don't blame folks for showing up to a lift, you know, being frustrated that it's not running not necessarily having all the context or the information. Um, so it's definitely, you know, I think the ski resorts are doing a better job of providing transparency either in the moment or kind of after the fact, uh, you know, in, in terms of 
you know, here's what happened. Here's how we're addressing it. You know, and here's what you can expect moving forward. Uh, I, I want to give a, a shout out to the Taos um, with maintenance team. Uh, I, I would put our um, kind of runtime percentage up against anybody. I think since I've been here, I've been so impressed with, um, you know, really the minimizing the downtime percentage uh, of our lifts here. So these, these guys do a great job. And it's definitely one of those things that um, the attention to detail of summer maintenance work is completely seen in the consistency and dependability of, of how that lift's running in the winter. Um, so to, to your question, um, these lifts, I know I'm stating the obvious, but they're made up of thousands of parts. Um, and a lot of those parts um, are, you know, electrical systems that are designed um, for essentially safety um, and safety systems. So that if one little thing um, gets triggered or one little thing is off, um, that, that safety system is going to stop the lift. Um, now, like with a lot of things, the more parts you get, you know, the more parts that can fail. Um, and when you're including, um, you know, maybe it's a consistent heavy load, you know, on a busy day or, um, wind, weather, snow, uh, a lot of resorts that might be listening have to deal with rime. Rime ice is a crazy thing. Uh, Taos, we definitely have to deal with it here and there, but not as much as some of those resorts up in the Pacific Northwest. And all of those factors um, can contribute to no matter how well, you know, your maintenance goes over the summer, your daily checks in the morning, your, your midday checks throughout the day. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to prevent, you know, a, a part from simply failing, you know, when you don't expect it to fail. And, you know, we, we keep a pretty heavy inventory of backup parts and, and, you know, those, those maintenance personnel are able to respond pretty quickly and, and know when, not only when it lifts down, but also kind of what it is and a quick assessment. And, and then you see them, you know, you'll, you might be on that chair and you see them climbing a 40 foot tower with a harness and then traversing across, you know, kind of one of those cat tracks on the, on the lift and to try to just fix um, a sensor. Um, and, and that's what it was. So uh, yeah, there's, there's um, a lot of pieces and parts to keep moving um, on a lift. For the wind piece, uh, the wind piece is challenging. And, um, you know, what's what's nice is that the weather reports that we all look at throughout the winter continue to get better and better. So we can definitely um, kind of start to predict and project when we might have a wind issue. Uh, so everybody from lift maintenance to patrol to lift ops are kind of on high alert and we're monitoring and we're definitely making those best decisions for guest safety. Chair swing um, is is the issue. So, you know, at certain points on certain lifts, depending on kind of the aspect of the mountain, what you're really looking for is is that chair swinging enough um, where it could come in contact with other parts of the lift. And you know, if that's a concern, then then you need to shut the lift down. Um, it's not necessarily a a certain miles per hour or direction. It's kind of a combination of the two. Uh, but it's wind is a challenge that I think all resorts are, are, are dealing with and, um, you know, potential effects of climate change and, and different kind of patterns of La Nina or El Nino. You, you see some years are better than others or some years are worse than others. But um, the wind is a challenging, challenging aspect. And I think it's one of those things where maybe you have to maybe you make the call to shut down a lift and everything's fine. You open it back up. Um, but it's you just 
you never know when you get that gust um, that could affect, uh, you know, the, op- the safe operation of the lift. So uh, not just the sustained speed, but you're kind of looking at what the gusts are doing to make sure that, you know, you're not, you're not running and open for public when you get one of those gusts. Um, but I, I mean, I guess to, to, to speak a little bit more on that, um, we are, uh, we look at this very, very closely. So when we're running, we, we have a high level of confidence, you know, that we're making the safe decision. Um, and then we're not running, we're doing it for, for very good reasons. It's really funny as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking about just from, you know, when I'm out, yeah, I might be on the mountain cause I'm supposed to be testing skis or a ski boot or something, but you know, at bottom, the reptilian part of me is just a skier, you know? And I think sometimes we get into the mode of, dude, why isn't this lift running? You're ruining my day here. And you and your team are like, um, we're keeping you safe and maybe alive. So you're welcome. And thanks for complaining that you aren't getting to the top of the mountain as quickly as you would like and exactly when you would like. And so there's kind of the, um, yeah, the more myopic view, which would perhaps be myself and that of, you know, certain skiers and boarders of like, you're messing up my day. And then you all have to, you don't get to say it back really, (laughs) but it's like, you're welcome that we're keeping you alive. Exactly right. It is a total challenge and a total balance um, because certain days we might have a lift on wind hold and you're looking up the line and you're like, it's not even blowing, you know? And then 10 minutes later, uh, you know, you get a gust that's 75 miles an hour. Uh, What's nice about the uh, lifts is that they have wind monitors. You typically put wind monitors on two or three towers that, uh, you know, see the most wind. So, uh, the lifts now are actually, um, programmed to either slow at a certain speed, um, or, and then stop at a certain speed. Uh, so that's, that's really helpful for our teams in the sense of if we are running and we do get a gust that we're not expecting, that lift is going to respond and react, um, when we need it to. Um, but I, I would say that I don't blame guests at all for frustrating those moments, right? The way I, the, I always, I always try to like take a situation like that and um, compare it to something that maybe I deal with personally, you know, in another situation. And the best thing I can come up with is when you're sitting on the tarmac, yes, you know, and yes. and and Good. the airline makes a decision that like, hey, we are so sorry. Um, but we have a maintenance repair that we just noticed and we need to switch planes. Now in my role, I'm like, yep, no problem. Give me, a, you know, I'll deal with it. We'll deal with it. I totally respect that decision because it's what we want them to do. And, and I guess I would just say that um, to, the, to the skiers out there, you know, when we're making these decisions, even when they're trying to, you know, they're hard to understand, it's, it's what you would want us to do. It's not just you're mad because somebody, you know, at the bar last night, you know, spilled a drink on you. And so you're like, you know what? I'm just going to ruin everybody else's day today. That's not why you. That's a no. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the last thing I want. Absolutely. Yeah. Now skiing. Um, I mean, how much fun is, is being on these mountains? And and so that's the last thing I want to do is, or we want to do is, is take that from somebody, especially, you know, if, if it's your one ski vacation of the year and you show up and we have a wind hold, like, you know, that sucks. And, and we try to really empathize and, and um, resolve the issue and make it as best we can. 
something we've been talking a good bit about on this Blister podcast and some conversations I've had with Cody Townsend, just talking about kind of ski area culture. You know, I think one of the things that I actually love so much about skiing is that turns out it is one of the things that certain people are the most passionate about, absolutely regardless of their economic status, right? So we've got some of the wealthiest people on the planet who like to click into skis, and then we've got some, those of us who started getting onto snow when we didn't have $10 in a bank account, right? And I love that about skiing and, and virtually any kind of passion activity that kind of attracts everybody to it. But one of the things that we've been talking about is how do we continue to keep that thriving ski culture intact where, you know, it is an expensive sport, you know, skis and ski boots and lift passes or lift tickets or places to stay. This all can add up and can get pretty unaffordable. And so a question that we've been talking about is, uh, and a topic we've been talking about is, um, specifically about like ski areas and creating spaces or preserving spaces where maybe a college student can sleep overnight in their car, right? To try to reduce costs to go get on their favorite mountain. And we've been talking about this and we've had a lot of people actually write in and it's been really informative and I need to do a follow-up episode with Cody about this. Um, just saying more about what's going on at certain ski areas. And sometimes it's where, where a ski area is doing things well, another time where people aren't that psyched on what's happening with respect to this particular issue I'm talking about. All that said, I'd love to hear how you are thinking about these issues at Tau Ski Valley and what you're doing about it. I, I think it's a fascinating topic and a really important topic for the, for the ski industry as a whole. And I, I would say that if if there's a magazine article or a book out there that's a, that's that's been about ski culture, I've read it because I love I love the topic, I love the personalities, um, I love just reading and hearing those stories. And you know, I think to your point, like we need it all. We need all sides of the spectrum um, to to make this work. And to um, you know, I think it is a testament to the sport um, and and being able to. I mean, you know, travel down snow on some crazy mountains. Um, you know, it's a testament to how amazing and fun and just, you know, joyful that is that it attracts um, a passion from just such a wide range of people. And I think it's the ski industry's responsibility to figure out a way to not alienate people um, and to make sure that we are um, – creating experiences, um, pricing options, you know, the, the full kind of, um, portfolio of, of what you get in a ski vacation or a ski day. Like we do have to figure out how all, you know, everybody can enjoy that. Um, you know, I'm really proud of the ski culture in Taos. Um, so much of it, uh, has, was, was built, 
um, way before my time here. Uh, and I love hearing the stories <clears throat> about, um, you know, in Taos about Ernie Blake and Jean Maillet, um, and just the, the local community and, and how they, um, really created a, a resort, um, and a mountain that, um, people are still attracted to that culture today. And it's one of the reasons they come to Taos. And so, um, it is our responsibility, um, to make sure that that continues while at the same time, um, updating infrastructure, um, you know, uh, redeveloping, you know, buildings or lodges or things like that. I, I think what you find at a lot of mountains is um, there's a lot of old infrastructure out there and, you know, it takes a long time to update that. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a balance. And in Taos, we, um, we do have uh, a small area dedicated to um, camper vans. Um, so I think it's a really cool thing that's evolved here is, um, you know, we do take reservations, um, and folks pull up their sprinter van on a Friday afternoon, hang out in the parking lot, um, stay for two nights, you know, a couple hundred yards from the base of the lift. And they're able to, to get that experience, um, or get the experience that they're looking for while, um, you know, the family, right next to him is staying in the new hotel. Uh, and so I think being able to provide all those options is, is absolutely essential. So the way it works at Taos these days is it is a reservation system. So you, you limited number of spots, but if I'm say a student coming up from Albuquerque, I, I would need to contact the mountain, see if I can get a spot and then might be able to crash in my truck or car that night in one of those spots? Correct. Yeah. So we, we, well, this is one of the things that we work with the forest service on, which um, is, is another kind of fascinating element about um, the ski industry and ski resorts is just that, that coordination and that collaboration um, with the forest service. So uh, our parking lots are on forest service land and we, we coordinate with, with them. And it's a really supportive relationship here with the Carson national forest. Um, so, uh, yes, we, we have um, about 20 um, dedicated spots, and it's a portion of the parking lot that essentially, you know, you roll in, check in with our parking lot attendant. They'll tell you, hey, you got spot 15 tonight. Um, you, you pull up there. We, we don't have um, necessarily, I don't want to uh, put expectations out there that it's a full hookup RV, you know, showers, everything like that. This is this is definitely in Taos. Um, going back to the culture, this is for um, folks that uh, are pretty self-contained in their their camper vans and things like that. Yeah, to be clear, that's exactly what I'm asking about. I'm not actually asking about the full hookup. It's like, you know, I'm sorry, folks. I'm less concerned about you <laughs> right now than I am the the usually young person yeah. that wants to just. I, I'm cool crashing in my in my car, you know, and I'm got a, you know, I've got a serious sleeping bag and we're good on that. And, um, you know, I think because <laughs> this kind of goes without saying, but I know there's been, you know, a lot of talk, a lot of questions, a lot of surveys about what is happening in skiing and snowboarding. And for quite a while, it seemed like we were getting articles that were saying the, Skiers and snowboarders are aging and we aren't seeing youth come into the sports. And I mean, that's a death sentence for any industry, right? Now, 
we also are seeing, I think, some new signs that actually young people are coming into these sports. But I think this is one of those things that it's like, we better keep finding ways to let families with young kids or young students, high school or college or whatever, to come into these things. And, you know, it's probably safe to assume they don't have their jobs. They aren't far away in their career. They are making less money than they likely will down the road. And I think like it is really something that I think the whole ski industry needs to be thinking about because if it's just, if the youth are priced out or if people are priced out, um, we can age out the number of people who still are passionate about these sports, you know, in the next five, 10, 20, 30 years type of thing. Absolutely. And, and the uh, national skier association has done a lot of good work on just um, compiling those studies and that data to show that, you know, the, the, the ski industry was definitely driven by the baby boomers. Right. And, and they're um, not going to be as big of a part of that skier visit base moving forward. So to your point, it is, it is essential that um, we're, attracting and creating, um, experiences in a way that, um, you know, both families with young kids, but also, um, you know, single people in their twenties and thirties are, are, this is a, um, feasible option for them to make both, whether it's a lifestyle or a vacation choice, um, or a past purchase decision, uh, things like that. Cause, cause, you know, and, and not just on the, I would say, socio um, kind of economic front, but also the diversity um, aspect. And, and Talos is really focused on um, the diversity, equity, inclusion piece um, of skiing and, and what our resort can be on that front. So uh, it's it's a challenge because, um, as we know, you know, skiing is not for everybody, but it can be. And it's and it's our job to, to kind of reduce that barrier to entry, whatever that barrier might be, um, you know, cost or, um, kind of the, just maybe the intimidation of, of going into the sport for the first time. Uh, it's something that, that we, uh, have to actively work at and every year figure out new ways to, um, to bring people into the sport. Another ski area culture question for you. It's a pretty specific one. Do you think more skiers and snowboarders should be wearing beacons and or other avi gear inbounds it's it's a really good question um and you know i think anybody um that is um that that wants to do that should do that absolutely you know i think any additional safety measures whether it be beacon whether it be an airbag um you know aspects like that is it's it's always a good decision for sure. And I think, um, with some of the, you know, terrain expansions and kind of the terrain that, that resorts are opening these days. Um, I don't think it's ever a bad idea to, you know, add that layer of, um, kind of Mm -hmm. safety and mitigation. Yeah. And I mean, I, I suppose you'd also say, or we could say as an operations guy, your job in a way is to make sure nobody actually would need that stuff. And yet, I mean, we don't get to control nature 100%, sometimes not even remotely close to 100%. 
I guess I ask in part one, because Taos is famous for its hike to terrain. And there's lots of us who do love, you know, the sections here in Crested Butte that are kind of far out there away from stuff, you know, and I wondered from an operations point of view, if you had any data, statistics, whatever, that would just say, hey, honestly, it's a good practice. We'd like to see more of that. Or if from what you're seeing, you would say, well, we can't actually say that, like, it can't be a a recommendation made from data that clearly people should but I guess then we would arrive at your point where you said, but hey, if you, if you would like to, uh, we're not going to tell you not to. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, again, obviously I'm a little biased, but the Taos Ski Patrol um, does an amazing job. And just the level of experience and expertise they have on every square foot of this mountain and, and how that square foot responds to, um, you know, overnight snow and, and water content and sun aspect and wind. And, and it's just, there's so many dynamic factors. Um, you know, I think specifically with, with climate change as well, uh, that, um, you know, you're constantly learning about the snowpack from day to day. And, and so I think, um, you know, it, it, most mountains refer to it as avalanche mitigation, you know, not necessarily avalanche um, prevention. Right. Um, so I think that's a key thing is, is, you know, our patrol and patrols everywhere in the industry do a phenomenal job of keeping the guests safe while skiing, you know, 20 inches of new snow on a, on a steep slope. I mean, that, that's really impressive. Um, and, and the work that patrols do to make that happen. Uh, but there's a lot of factors, um, you know, outside everybody's control. So I think, anybody that that wants to invest in a beacon um, or an airbag while skiing uh, inside, you know, inbounds terrain, it's never a bad decision. You've mentioned climate change a couple times. I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of ski areas and sustainability. This gets talked about a lot. Obviously, if snow goes away, that makes it real hard for there to be a ski industry. What are some of the things that are happening at Taos on this front? And I would just love to get your thoughts on some, I don't know, best practices. Maybe there's some ideas for people from, you know, operators at other ski areas, if they're listening to this. What what are some of the things happening today with respect to operating ski industries that we ought to know about. And, and I mean, maybe some of these things are more unique to TSV. Yeah. And, and, you know, ski resorts are obviously kind of on the front lines of climate change. And, and so we all bear a huge responsibility uh, to do whatever we can to, to preserve this experience and, and this sport, but also, um, you know, the, the environment itself and the outdoors and the mountains. So it's, gosh, it's a, it's a huge undertaking. Um, and so you have to kind of, um, really figure out what, what your impact can be and, and what your resorts impact can be. Uh, I, I am so proud to work for, for Taos and what Taos is doing. Uh, in 2017, we became the world's first B Corp ski resort. Uh, and we still are today. And, you know, for that, for us, that's, that's not just some box we checked and pat ourselves on the back. We actually go through a certification process every three years, um, for, 
a variety of factors, um, environmental being one of them. So we're constantly having to make sure that we're um, improving uh, the situation uh, versus kind of staying stagnant, um, whether it be um, our impact in the community, um, our, you know, the living wage that we pay our staff, um, the, you know, reducing our, our emissions whenever we can. In addition to that, um, two years ago, we became certified carbon neutral as well. So uh, we, this is, this is absolute top of mind on, for Taos. It's who we are. It's, it's the driving factor of, of what the type of mountain we want to be. And as a real, um, when we make decisions, purchasing decisions, um, you know, operational decisions, it, it, it's through the lens of, of, you know, climate change in the environment. Uh, one of the things that we're really excited about um, is we have nine new electric snowmobiles um, that we're going to have on the mountain this year. And, and we're going to continue to kind of uh, turn over the fleet um, from uh, gas powered to electric. Uh, we're going to be home to the first uh, electric snowcat in North America um, with a e-motion Husky cat from Prenoth. Um, and then we're also getting a, uh, hybrid, um, E plus cat, um, from Piston Bully. So, uh, from an, from a standpoint of kind of, you know, putting our money where our mouth is, we're, we're continuing to, is, is, if it's available from a, you know, electrification standpoint or a carbon emissions reduction standpoint, um, we're, we're constantly looking at, at ways to do that. I did not know that an electric snow cat existed. Tell me more. <laughs> it, it, it does. Um, I, I think uh, Europe um, has been, uh, there's been a lot of prototypes um, in, in Europe and they're working through um, continuing to, uh, like everything, right? This, this cat's going to be a little bit of a um, kind of the first iPhone, right? And then it, and then it develops from there. So uh, this is a, a smaller snow cat that we're going to use for very specific purposes, um, but, uh, Prenoth and Puston Bully are both, um, working through, um, kind of getting more options over in North America and then also, um, kind of the, the bigger fleet options as well. So we're, I think we're going to have it here in January. Um, and we're, we're really excited to, um, kind of be the first resort to really put this to use. We're definitely going to check that out together when I'm out there. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to try to have like a whole electric caravan of the, the snowcat followed by the snowmobiles, you know, followed by the E plus and um, really, you know, just the noise reduction alone. Like think about, you know, when you're skiing and you kind of hear that snowmobile cranking by with the fumes and stuff. That's one of the things that selfishly I'm really excited about. Plus with that quiet now, you know, when you have that out of control skier now, patrol can just snipe them, like just T-bone them, you know, run, run them over, exactly, knock them yeah. out, get them down the mountain, <laughs> throw them in jail. Um, so yeah, it's going to be the new, yeah, that's like the new, like, did you get, did you get sniped by the, uh, the, the, the silent, the silent new sled? Yeah. It, it's funny too. I mean, yeah. I think these conversations where just was talking this week with a number of some of the largest ski companies in the world, and talking about these issues and the future of the sport and the rest and, and talking about um, what needs to be done, what the industry needs to be doing collectively. Um, and we were talking more about um, specifically ski and snowboard manufacturers. But I do think that 
it's cool to hear about the specific things and specific steps that TSV is taking. What I know a lot less about is what is happening collectively from the ski area industry. Um, and I, I keep thinking about the, the notion that lobbying lobbying is probably still one of the most impactful things that could happen today on that front. And so there's two things I guess I want to say. Like one, again, for folks in the ski area industry listening to this, either, well, I definitely need to get more educated on what is currently happening, but we're going to need to, I think, see that movement, the collective voice coming together to push lawmakers and legislatures in maybe the right way. That said, I don't like to devalue the incremental steps. Like when you mentioned, well, the snowcat, it's, it's, not, it's not the full-blown largest cat that you've ever seen. And it's like, well, you know, sometimes things, progress is iterative, and you got to start putting one foot in front of the other and start making these changes. And I think your example of the iPhone, right? Like there has been iterative change and those things can add up. I don't know beyond that what you might be able to say about the my thought about sort of collectively, what ski areas collectively can do, should be doing. Uh, I, I agree with you 100% on just the, the progress and, you know, just like the classic, like, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I think that's that's what we're seeing right now with what the, the ski industry is doing with, um, you know, kind of the the improvements in infrastructure and electrification and, and all those aspects, snowmaking gun efficiencies, things like that. Um, so, again, I, I, I want to give credit to the NSAA. Um, they, they've had a climate challenge for a while. Um, and it's really, you know, they, they hand out, um, annual awards based on environmental initiatives, uh, and, and start to really capture the data too. Cause that, that was actually one of the biggest steps for us to be able to kind of get to be certified carbon neutral. Like we had to spend a year or two just getting the data and just kind of understanding what our actual impact was from, the diesel that each snowcat's using to the, um, you know, electric bill on certain lifts, you know, all those sort of things. So that was a big step for us. Um, and in terms of your statement about just progress and incremental progress, um, I, I think that's really important. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're just, I mean, obviously the big goal out there is super important, but if you're just focused on that, you're going to miss the steps along the way. Um, for sure. I, one of the things that, um, is vital to how the ski industry's impact is every ski resort in the world needs ski lifts, snow cats, and for the most part, snowmobiles. Um, and so I think continuing and, and I, I, the suppliers, the ski lift suppliers out there and manufacturers, the snow cat, it's really cool to see those folks, um, and their commitment, uh, to what they are doing, to make improvements in those areas and advanced technology in those areas. Cause all the, all of us are dependent on them um, for the infrastructure that allow us to run a ski resort. Uh, and so I think continuing to see advancements from the manufacturers and the suppliers uh, one has been huge and two is, is vital moving forward. Well, I'm getting back to Towski Valley this year. I can't wait. I don't know exactly yet. 
when we're going to be coming back down, but certainly going to, you know, try to play the weather windows a little bit. I haven't, I haven't been there maybe since 2017. You and I were kind of just sort of crossing paths, I think. Right. Yeah. But tell me a little bit about some of the new stuff that's been going on at TSV since I, you know, in my absence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think this year specifically, we have a really uh, exciting combination of both new lifts and new terrain. And, you know, when I think about not only the history of uh, Taos, but probably a lot of mountains, it's just, it's not every day or every year that, that you open up new terrain. And, and actually for us, it's it's new kind of expert terrain and some some gladed areas that we're really excited about that guests are going to see um, once the conditions allow. Uh, from a lift perspective, um, we replaced uh, the Pioneer's uh, beginner lift and, and made some really nice grading adjustments, um, a new magic carpet, and the new lift itself. So from a beginner family perspective, uh, it's going to be a great option right next to the, to the base area. Um, and then we replaced lift four. So um, I know you're very familiar with lift four. Uh, obviously, I got to plug the Bavarian. There's no better place, no better deck to sit on, have a beer, um, and look up at Kachina Peak. Uh, and so that lift um, went from a, a, a essentially a 30-year-old fixed-grip quad to now a brand-new um, detachable high-speed quad. So uh, the, your, your ride from the Bavarian deck to the base of Kachina Peak is going to get cut in half. Um, so we're, we're really, really excited about that. Um, the other thing too, for, 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 for us is, um, you know, we kind of heard loud and clear that, um, from our guests and stuff that everybody absolutely loves the mountain here. And why, why wouldn't they, they were like, can we have a, a few more things to do, you know, once the lifts close? Uh, so that's a big focus of ours. Cause look, I mean, if this is, this should be fun and we want to, make sure that everybody that is committing to a Taos vacation or just coming up for the weekend is, is having a great time, not just on the mountain, but off the mountain. So um, the Martini tree is coming back. It's an iconic, um, you know, ski town bar uh, that, you know, through COVID and some other things uh, we did not operate the last couple of years. Uh, we're bringing it back Thursday to Sunday, trivia nights on Thursdays, DJ bands, um, you know, football games on the wall, um, pool table, all that sort of stuff, Frito pie bar, things like that. So we're really excited about that. We got an ice skating rink that we're going to put some like silent disco and some ice bocce on. So um, really trying to kind of complete the experience uh, in Taos. And it's going to be a really cool winter, especially with uh, El Nino, obviously going to uh, favor the Southwest this year. So I can't wait to get back <laughs> on that mountain. Last question. What's your personal favorite run or two at TSV? So I'll give you, I'll give you two options um, or two, two scenarios. So the first one, I, I try to go up and sweep um, with ski patrol as much as I can. Um, for those listening, uh, every mountain has to essentially um, sweep uh, every run at the end of the day to make sure that um, every guest is off the mountain. And my personal favorite to sweep at the end of the day is Longhorn. Um, it's, it's just this classic, um, kind of great. It's got some really advanced turns at the top and then, a just a long bump run all the way down the base. So I love that. Uh, but then for me also it's Hunziker bowl, um, top to bottom. Um, you could access it off of Kachina peak, uh, but it just gives so many different kind of different types of turns and, and aspects and things like that. Um, I have an eight year old and a 10 year old, 
um, who are essentially out skiing me now at this point. And it's really cool, as everybody knows, to just follow your kids around and see what terrain they're going to take you in next. So that's that's a big part of my um, favorite runs as well. Solid answers. Um, I'm excited to get back and and uh, hopefully we can make some turns together. I would I would love that. Absolutely. Hey, John, I really appreciate this conversation. We we have not had a conversation like this. I don't think in eight years of doing this blister podcast. And I, I think it's really cool to pull the curtain back a bit on mountain operations and getting ready for a season and concerns about the future and how you all are thinking about that. And, um, yeah, I hope it, um, one, I hope it just gives, you know, us recreational skiers and riders a better sense of how this all works. Um, but two, hopefully, you know, sparks an idea or two from another ski area operator listening to this. And, and uh, I, I love the idea that some of these conversations would apply what I kind of call an appropriate pressure on other areas to like, hey, Taos is doing this. Let's also do that. Or let's try to one-up them in this regard. Like, I, I think that would, you know... There's room for that, I think, and that kind of appropriate pressure to keep finding better practices, right, is something that um, would just simply be good for the entire industry. And I think for any of us who uh, are grateful for things like chairlifts, I think that would make us all feel better about the places we love to visit. Absolutely. And, and I think um, what's really unique and cool about the ski industry is the collaboration that, that happens um, between resorts and between operators and, and just the lessons learned that we all pick up from each other. So, and, uh, and I just want to say thank you for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Um, I would love to, to do it again. I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about the ski industry as a whole. Um, so uh, thank you. Sure thing, John. Thanks again. And I will see you this winter. Can't wait. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to John for the great conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Till the next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.